Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Today's episode features Dr. Carlos Fajarun Guzman, Assistant Professor of Global Health at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Trained as a physician, Carlos directs the Inter-American Center for Global Health in Costa Rica, where he designs practical and experiential learning for students in global health. Our conversation today explores things to consider when designing on-the-ground experiences for students, the importance of a democratic perspective when teaching, and what he's learned by being a student and a faculty member in different countries. Carlos, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're really excited for today's conversation. So let's start with your current work. You currently run a small academic research center that, among many other things, places students in experiential learning opportunities, where the students are really on the ground getting their hands uh, in the field of global health. Your own career changed after a similar experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I should start by saying that I actually studied medicine uh, and I'm MD. However, that really last portion of my medical degree, I spent three months away from the hospitals and away from the clinics of Central San Jose, which is the capital of Costa Rica. So I had never lived in a rural area before. I had never encountered uh, working with uh, populations that are considered vulnerable. So uh, when the opportunity arose to to actually go far from home and, and live in a rural community, I chose the farthest places I could go. I actually wanted to, to go really, really far from home. So I chose this little town in the southern region of Costa Rica, which borders with Panama, which is called San Vito de Cotobruz. San Vito de Cotobruz became basically my home in, in, in the future. Uh, and what I encountered there was work with indigenous populations and with migrant populations. And sometimes those two overlap. Sometimes there is indigenous migrant populations. Uh, being there and having really good mentorship from uh, a person who I still keep uh, uh, close to my kind of my close circle of friends, which is Dr. Pablo Ortiz, who had worked 30 plus years in the region, really led to an expansion of the understanding of health. So I went from understanding health from uh, uh, being it kind of a lack of disease. And when, you, when you're studying a health profession, you're actually studying to become a disease expert. And that is the case for most curriculums around the world. When you're studying a health profession, you're actually studying disease not health. So going to this place and working with someone that has a human rights perspective, a social justice perspective, and a, and a health determinants perspective, you understand that health is much more than just the lack of, of or the absence of disease. So it really it opened up my understanding of what is health and also my understanding on how to work effectively with communities, something I had never learned through my six-year medical career was how to actually encounter and, 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 and talk and work with communities. I was, also, I was always taught to work um, very vertically. And in, in this experience, I really, really got the opportunity to work horizontally with community leaders and other institutions that were in place. One of the other things that 
really changed during that period of time was the fact that I had never encountered kind of critical literature, what I call critical literature. I always encountered kind of mainstream kind of medical texts, and this is how you do things, and this is the theory, and this is where it comes from. And that's also very kind of from the Global North perspective. Uh, I started reading a lot around uh, Latin American authors that had critical perspectives on not just kind of history and development in general, but also about health and interculturality, among others. So I think those combinations of factors really kind of opened my brain up. And my first decision back then was to actually postpone going into a residency program and becoming a specialist to actually explore what it meant to be a community health worker, what it meant to work as a health professional in a community for a couple of years. And during those two years that I had kind of taken off to work in a community setting, I actually just veered my career completely and uh, started working as in public health, eventually kind of led into grad school again. And kind of the rest of the story is, is that I don't do any medicine uh, formally for the last six years now. And uh, I basically work in public health, global health, and the intersection of those two things with uh, higher education. Well, it's certainly not an understatement to say that, that that experience moving to that rural location, working with that community, really set your life on a different trajectory. Um, and there's two things that I'd like to follow up on. And the first uh, goes back to some phrases you used. I wondered if you could uh, explain what you mean by them a little bit. You talked about the difference between vertical and horizontal uh, engagement. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit how, how you interpret that in medicine and, and what you think it might mean for education as well. Sure. So, I mean, I'm borrowing these terms from the development field and uh, for anyone out there listening and asking what is, incorpor- what, what, in- what is included in the development field, I would say any work that someone is doing that is trying to change something for good is development. So you might think of people that, everything that people that work in infrastructure building to actually education and health and human rights, if they're working to change something for good, then they're working in development. Um, and then the importance there is that good needs to incorporate what the people that are benefiting from this work consider good, right? And that's a little bit of one of the principles of horizontality is actually including uh, the people that you're working with uh, in, in not just kind of the outcomes and what do you think is a good outcome, but actually in how do we get there? How do we evaluate these outcomes? Who is included in the work? Who takes the decisions? Who makes, uh, who 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 manages the accountability? All those things are um, uh, are considered when we think about what is vertical. A vertical would be a very top-down approach where there's a very hierarchical power structure. There isn't a lot of transparency around accountability. Uh, the power, the decisions are made somewhere far away from. The, 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 the place where work is being done and horizontally is, is very much about integrating those people that you're working with or those communities that you're working with in those processes. So horizontal versus uh, uh, vertical, it's, it's what I'm meaning. Or, or it's also called kind of top down or bottom up approach. Um, then how do we incorporate this into education? Um, well, it's 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 it, it kind of the, the principles still remain. Right. And Unfortunately, university and, and institutional structure don't always allow for those things to happen. Sometimes you'll you'll have to stick to a specific format on how you want to build the course 
that is recommended by your institution. But in reality is that in, in development, there's this mantra that, that I kind of evangelize people around, which is nothing about me without me. And when you're thinking about learning, nothing about me without me includes the student, right? So the student and the student perspective should be included in the design process. And again, if you're an educator out there listening to this, you're thinking, well, how am I going to do that? You know, how am I going to include a student in a design process if he's not even he or she's not even enrolled in my class before I start designing it? And that's where kind of but what I mean by then institutional structures don't allow us to be as effective as possible as we want to when we're designing courses for students. So meeting students at where they're at is one thing that is, is, is key, right? Kind of the learning processes are not the same. Allowing for those diverse learning processes is, is very important. Um, allowing for a methods to evaluate student outcomes that take into consideration student capacities is something really important also. And again, if you're out there listening, it's like, this sounds very burdensome. And the learning process sometimes is burdensome if you want to tailor it and and, and you, you want to make this uh, uh, a worthwhile experience for those students and, and, and actually shift and transform perspectives and values and attitudes. It's not just about that knowledge transfer. It goes beyond that. So uh, those are some of the thoughts I had around vertical, horizontal, and and how you do that. Yeah. It sounds as you're talking, the word that comes to my mind is really the idea of empowerment. Um, we're empowering the communities that you're working uh, with and for uh, on the community health side, but also empowering your students to really take ownership of where that educational process is uh, is going for them, where it's leading them, where it's what it's connecting them to. Yes, in, indeed. It's, it's about empowering, but it's also about recognizing their agency in the learning process. It's also recognizing their expertise that they bring based on their experience. They're also knowledge holders of other types of knowledge, maybe not the, kind of these kind of that content based, but they're definitely owners and, and have experiences that they, they can build on and learn on and they can share with their peers. So it's definitely about promoting that agency and, as you say, empowering them to, to take control of their learning process. Yeah, that uh Given the way that our educational system and our uh, our university system work here, where we pride expertise uh, in one's discipline, you know, a, a PhD is really a, a testament to expertise in a in a uh, one area of research. Um, and I I think sometimes faculty can feel uncomfortable with the idea of um, maybe not uh, being in a position to share all the expertise that they have and turning that over a little bit to the students. Have you ever experienced that? Have you encountered that um, and either in the health setting or in the education setting? And, and what do you recommend for faculty to um, ways that they might become more comfortable with uh, making their courses a little more horizontal, a little more democratic? Well, let 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 the burden of, of the teaching fall a little bit into the, the students, I would say, it's, it's, it's their also their responsibility and you want them to take that responsibility. It's not just about giving handouts. It's about, as you were saying, kind of providing that agency to student to feel that they can build and, and, and create. So I would say uh, if, if you let go a little bit, if you allow spaces for conversation instead of just professors speaking to student, open up spaces for dialogue to happen, not just among you 
and the students, but among the students themselves. That is a really easy way to get conversation going uh, and, and to, to take the burden off yourself as an educator. Um, and, and, and a whole, let's say, a two-hour class can become a dialogue. Right? It can become a conversation. It doesn't have to be content-heavy and top-heavy. It can be really, really relaxing. It could be just, I, I remember with, with great theme, the first time I encountered a classroom like this one, and it was in, in, in Scotland, in which I was preparing for a very kind of top-down, kind of theory-based social justice class. And the first class, the professor introduced himself, and he just presented a picture of a, of a, of a scene in Italy um, of, of the city, kind of just the city of, of, of Milan, I think it was. And it was just a picture of the city. And there were some situations happening in the picture. And we just talked about the picture for two years and extracted what he, we had learned from kind of the theory that he had left us to read. And then kind of we just talked about the picture and how that related to the theory. And I thought that was much better than having him speak to me oh, this person invented this theory and this person contraposed this other theory and, you know, these are the basics of this theory, but we actually applied them in the classroom. I remember that very vividly because that, that was until my master's. I had already finished my medical degree and no one had ever taught in that way. It was also, it was always content topped down. Six years of this, six years of content topped down. And the first time I encountered someone saying, look, there's another way of teaching, it was, was amazing. So allow yourself to just let go of the power in teaching and you'll see how enriched your students and the learning experience will become. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the role of your mentor uh, during your experience in the rural community. Uh, and it seems as though men- the role of the mentor in this approach to education is uh, is going to be a special, not just a special relationship, but something very important to the structure of this kind of education. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about your mentor, about how he approached uh, training you, developing you in this new space you were in. Sure. Um, I must say that as, as, as now being a mentor myself, I recognize some of the things he did. Um, uh, back then, and then some of the things I also want to step away from. Um, uh, and and it, he was a really he was at the end of his career. He was ready, ready to uh, soon to to become a pensioner and retire. When when I encountered him in in my last year of medicine, but I think because of that, he was really skeptical of some things that that uh, that were were happening and and what. So he taught me how to see things through skeptical eyes and that kind of biased me to also be very skeptical i think i'm trying to stay away from that from that and trying to impose skeptical views in in students i think if they want to be skeptical i'll just allow them to be skeptical by themselves and through their own critical thinking process so that's one thing uh and then the other thing is that he was really hands-off and um and again, he was at the end of his career and he was really hands off. He literally said, I would come home sometimes and, and like have coffee with him. And, you know, and, and I would ask all these questions. Why is this happening? Why, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? What's the reason why these things are continuously happening wrong? Right. And he wouldn't give me an answer. You know, he would just point to a book. You know, he's like, I'm going to get, I'm going to send you an email, you know, just like read that or go to my library 
take this book and then, you know, just like, so very hands off. And, but that learning process, I mean, I was an eager learner. I was super going through this very kind of reconstructive phase of my life. I was about to graduate. I didn't know what to do with my next step. So I was really an open sponge to all those things. Uh, and again, I, 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 I recognize that not everyone will be able to have a successful learning process in that way with a very hands-off approach. There's some students that are going to need a little bit more of, of, of reinforcement. And, and I've encountered students that actually benefit a lot from that. And so that would be one, one thing. And, and uh, the other thing would be about learning about mistakes. And, and because he was really hands-off, I really learned from my mistakes but looking back, some of those mistakes actually were cost the health of, of, of a community or because I, I, I took a wrong approach. You know, I delayed a process that could have been quicker, that could have been beneficial for, for a community. Or I had to, you know, I, I might have like threw up a process of, of, of design, which didn't include a community voice. Then I had to go back, you know, and redesign that in the future. And that was resources of an institution so all those things, I think, kind of unintended consequences and learning from my mistakes was something that I would have preferred someone told me up front. But again, hands off. Learning uh, or, or mentoring really didn't get me to that point until uh, further down. But that's something that when working with people in communities, I think learning from mistakes is not something that should be part of, of, of like how you design your mentoring experience early on. There should be an intervention from a mentor that said, wait, you might make a mistake here. Consider this, consider that and not allowing the course to just run itself and run the mistake and then having to come back. I would say I've, I've stepped away from from a little bit from that. It sounds like the stakes are too high uh, for that kind of mistake based learning, as important as that can be. So one of the things your center does is to place students uh, who are coming to Costa Rica from all over the world into practical, experiential learning opportunities in global health, which I would imagine involves engaging with local organizations, communities, community organizations. What what kinds of things are involved in designing this type of education? And uh, what do you think classroom teachers can take from it um, to improve their classroom-based instruction? The the components of what that looks like uh, are very similar depend are very similar uh, if you're doing a field course or if you're doing a, a more practicum-based experience. And because we work with mostly health um, uh, professions, uh, these practical-based or practicum-based experience a lot of times do uh, require community interface. So because of that, you're going to want to include the community uh, perspectives in the design process of that experience, of that learning experience. And when I talk about community perspective, I also am including their uh, being able to map appropriately their assets and their uh, challenges, right? And and this is one of the approaches that we take, which is we go beyond just identifying challenges and then filling the gap, which is what a lot of institutions do. They identify a challenge and they try to fill that gap. We go beyond that approach and look at the assets that the community has that you know, in order to be able to include them uh, in the learning process, because that is some, one of the key learning outcomes is uh, 
is uh, allowing students to uh, or being being able to transfer that ability to students in a, in order to have them identify what assets are. So um, that's kind of so allowing that to happen, including community perspectives, but also including what the student desires to learn, what they want to learn, and that what they're able to do. Also, right. Uh, a lot of the times we get requests from universities that want their students to do X, Y, Z. And when we go back and interview the students, we notice that they don't have abilities to do X, Y, Z. And this goes back a little bit to my previous uh, comment on, on your question, which was related to kind of learning from mistakes. There are certain things that are acceptable to learn from mistakes, but there are certain things that aren't, especially when you're spending communities times and resources in that learning process, you have to be very careful that the actual end product of the learning process, if it's a practical based experience, that that end product can be utilized. And it's not something that is faulty. And then when applied or when used, it's going to lead to a detriment to the health of the community. So you can't allow those things. So uh, meeting the students at where their capacities are is incredibly important. We're working with communities and not allowing them to kind of just build their skills kind of because the stakes are high, as you were saying. On the other hand of that equation is the, the health of the community. So uh, those those are things to consider when you're working with with communities, for sure. So how do we transfer some of these experiences or some of the things we do in, 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 in these more experiential basic uh, learning experiences into the classroom? I would say one of the most important things that we try to do with our students, whether it's a field course or a practicum-based experience, is have a continuous process of reflection and a, a praxis, right? So what I mean by that is we constantly open up the opportunities for them to have dialogue amongst themselves about what's going on, what they're learning, what their challenges are, but also with the mentors, with the preceptors. So by opening up all those spaces, we also can kind of a, a monitor how the student is advancing, where are areas that need to be strengthened, and how do how can we then move forward in the learning process? Because these learning processes are not short. These are usually four, six, eight-week processes. And reflection can happen anywhere. Reflection can happen in a classroom-based setting or in an experiential-based setting. And it's as important in both. And again, Having students do that, taking the time and opening up the necessary spaces in your classroom, be it abroad or locally, is incredibly important for the learning process to be successful. So that, that I would say that is one thing classroom-based educators can do easily, be it via forum, via a chat, via a conversation, a group breakout, etc. So a lot of opportunities can arise from that. Yeah, that's such wonderful advice. And when you think about the context of health professions education, where there is such a, um, you know, there's the clinic experience and then there's also the classroom experience. You really have to be intentional, it seems like, about building opportunities for reflection in there to really help students cement that knowledge, that experience to track their progress. Um, but it, it sounds like being intentional about that reflective process is very important for faculty to consider. Indeed. And um, and I would encourage uh, uh, educators that are out there looking at incorporating reflection to actually look at different frameworks of reflection. It's not just about asking, oh, how did you feel? 
there's much more to the how you frame the question, how you get to that how do you feel question or what did you learn question. Before that, there's a process that needs to be planned. It can be flexible, but there needs to be planning. As you said, you need to be intentional about your reflections. And I, I do think that a lot of the times I've seen people say, oh, I do reflection. It's mostly superficial and, and it requires preparation on both sides. And so it's not as easy as it sounds. It takes time to, to master, I think, for the student and for the educator. So um, it's a process in which an initial reflection from a student might be actually superficial. And then you can actually take that as an opportunity to do formative uh, assessment for the student in that initial reflection. Be very transparent. What are you looking for? Uh, I'm looking beyond just what did you experience. I'm looking on try to it, 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 try to, trying you to tell me why do you think you experienced it that way? What is why do you think you saw that in that particular way? Why do you think this is wrong and why do you think this is right? Because you said, oh, they were doing this quote unquote weird or different thing. Where do you think that different perspective comes from? So, being very transparent about those processes with the learner. Is incredibly important because then they get into that groove on how you want them to be thinking about reflection and how reflection should happen. Yeah, this sounds like a real, um, a very interesting opportunity to to explore more in the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning ways to structure reflection, facilitate it, provide feedback on it. That seems uh, that's something that's very important. I I work a lot with uh, folks who are doing service learning uh, and they're as part of their traditional class experience and the everything about the growth and and um, knowledge gained from service learning really comes down to reflection so you're it's so true that structuring it well is is really important so going back to your your biography a little bit you either as a student or an educator you've experienced educational systems in Costa Rica Scotland the Netherlands, the U.S., uh, there may be more. Um, and I'm just wondering what you have learned about education or yourself as an educator by uh, through this experience, through seeing these different approaches to education. Well, as a learner, I think I stopped seeing big names in, 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 in university titles and, and who's, it's, it's not about the level of expertise that the educator or the facilitator or the professor has is how good of an educator are they right so i think i've i've been able to kind of dissociate as a learner from big names and appreciate more teaching styles and 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 and, and kind of ways of, of of learning so by that i mean we have the classic example about kind of the extra successful super published professor who is basically a very vertical, top-down educator. And the experience might be very kind of bland to students. And then you have people at smaller universities that are incredibly, you know, dynamic and have support from a great kind of a, a educator a support system, um, such as kind of centers for teaching that are, that are spread out throughout different universities and university systems. So you can, so I would say as a learner, I've kind of learned to step away from the big names and kind of the, the flashiness of those big names and kind of look more for the quality of the learning experience. Uh, so kind of 
as an educator, I kind of try to follow that also and and uh, uh, try to make my classroom as dynamic as possible and as as we were saying earlier as kind of horizontal or the other term that sometimes we use is democratic right and, and trying to involve student perspective so um i would say stay away from big names if what you're looking is uh, try to find quality sometimes you'll find quality in big names of course uh, but those things don't always match and then the other thing i've learned as a student and as a learner is that actually small classrooms are really really unique uh, so there's a there's a balance there on how small is small and how big is big uh, and it's going to depend on group dynamics peer-to-peer learning the level of those students but once you get that fine-tuning right and you manage to 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 kind of create the necessary breakout groups and 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 have different perspectives involved from the different students in the classroom uh, I would say a smaller classroom is preferred from a, a large classroom which is in dissonance with a lot of the higher education models which is kind of how do we get more students into a classroom and not less students into a classroom so I do I do I do actually push back a lot on that when someone asks me well I'm gonna send a group of 25 students uh, to your center and I usually say well no uh, we usually have a policy of if it's a lower level uh, uh, a class will allow something like 15, 16 students. If it's a higher level, like a grad student, will actually want smaller um, uh, classroom sizes because the farther you go in your education process, you're probably going to have more to share, more to say, more to, more to actually kind of learn from each other. So we do want that to be a key component. And if you have 25 people speaking in a two hours period, you're not going to get anywhere. Instead, if you have half that amount with a limited time that you have, and this is what one of the most important things that we have is we have limited time with students. They go, they go do other things. You want to keep them forever, but they go do other things. Uh, so in that limited time, it's important to get their perspectives. So small is good. That's, I would say is, 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 those two things I would say is, is, is added to the other things I've said in the past, are, 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 I think are, are useful to consider. And again, sometimes institutional structures work against us in that, in that way. Yeah. But what I hear in, in your comments there is, is being very mindful about the, the form and the function of the educational experience and making sure that those are in alignment. I mean, it, because your approach is so democratic, is so horizontal, then you need to be mindful of how many bodies are in that space who can take advantage of that. I think if you were uh, coming at it maybe from a different mindset, uh, those same considerations may not bubble up to the top uh, of the concerns. So it, it really seems as though your your mindset, your ap- approach both to healthcare and education with such a, a social justice equity lens uh, really informs everything about the decisions you make as an educator. Indeed, indeed. I mean, that's that's spot on. Thanks for summarizing it that way. Oh, it's very, uh, it's just, it's impressive and it's inspiring. It's really, this is such a uh, great opportunity for our our audience just to hear uh, new approaches and, and new ways of uh, coming at this educational experience uh, that may be very aligned with how they approach healthcare, but may not, 
they may not translate that necessarily to the classroom. So it's it's exciting to to hear. What uh, what about your teaching? How has your teaching changed over time? If you could go back and and talk to past Carlos uh, and and uh, tell him something uh, that from future Carlos, what what might you go back and say to yourself as an educator? Uh, I think a lot of things I would say, like get a different haircut and, <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. But um, uh, I would say um, similar to what I was saying earlier, I would say let go a little bit. You know, I remember my first teaching role. I was incredibly nervous to appear as the content expert. So I had to spend all this time kind of uh, trying to prove students that I was the content expert. And I did have a lot of, of impo- not a little, a lot of imposter syndrome as I was actually a quite young when, when I got my first kind of teaching role. Um, I did know I wanted to go into teaching kind of early on in my career, but I didn't actually get into teaching uh, after I graduated. Of course, I could have done some opportunities as a TA or you know, as a, as a, as a kind of, as a learner of educators, uh, in my university. But again, as a med student, you rarely have opportunity to do some, uh, to kind of have spare time to, to do more learning than what you're already trying to memorize. Cause that's what you do in med school. You try to memorize a lot of things. And, uh, so because I had this imposter syndrome, I really kind of just really, really, really spent a lot of time thinking more about what I was supposed to teach and not how, how am I supposed to teach? So I would say I would go back and, and, and say, kind of let go a little bit, uh, allow the students to talk amongst themselves. You don't have to prove to them you are the expert. Uh, you're already in front of a classroom uh, and, and they have a lot of valuable experiences to share with you. So allow that to happen. I would say I would also do a little bit less heavy on the reading for them. I would kind of kind of ground them and say three readings for tomorrow and then three more big readings for the next day um but by doing that i was actually not allowing them to soak up the experience right so instead of kind of three long readings now i would do one reading and then some maybe some journal reflecting and that's your job in the afternoon is one reading and then a little bit reflecting on a journal um because if you have them do three big readings, then they won't be able to to think about anything else than trying to read. So I would say, again, go back, Carlos, let go a little bit. Let go of the power that you think you have in, in the classroom and, and democratize a little bit more or horizontalize a little bit more your classroom. That's great. It takes a lot of confidence and also vulnerability to to come to that place, I think, because you you have to be confident that... Uh, like you said, it's not you're not an imposter. You're there for a reason, um, and and you don't have to prove anything. You know the the number of readings does not uh, equate to um, the amount of knowledge that can be uh, instilled necessarily. Right? It's a matter of facilitation and and drawing that out of the students. In addition to, it's not just about shoving it in. It's about drawing it out. It sounds like. Indeed, indeed, that's that's the way I I, I like to see it right now. Is there something, Carlos, uh, that's on the horizon in global education, uh, a new approach, a new philosophy, new strategy, new technology, really anything that uh, that you're seeing coming in the future that you think can 
can move the needle, to go back to our show's title, something that can really move the needle in global education that we should know about? Yes, uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, what, what excites me is that there's a kind of this emerging movement of recognizing interconnection uh, in, in, in everything, you know, and I work a lot in uh, planetary health education, which kind of combines environmental health, global health, uh, political sciences, economy, among others, and trying to understand how what we're doing to the environment, what we're doing to our natural system is actually kind of coming back to hurt us and, and detri- to in detriment to our health. So we try to understand those connections between health and the environment, but also try to uh, create uh, and imagine solutions for these challenges ahead of us. So I think COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic has really kind of hit the nail in the head when we say interconnection, not just interconnection with nature, but interconnection with everything, global systems, economic systems, pharmaceuticals, science, uh, uh, travel, etc. right? Trade. It just comes to really demonstrate how interconnected our, our world is. Um, and in the recognition of that interconnection and, and putting the interconnection at the core of a learning process, be it whatever you're doing, you suddenly start recognizing that there, then there's other things, other moral imperatives, other ethical frameworks, other ways of learning that you should be incorporating in the learning process. So, for example, we're using this word, this kind of framework that uh, we're borrowing from the ecological sciences, which is interconnection within nature. So it's about recognizing your place in nature, your interconnections with different beings, species, trees, water, both live and non-live objects of of this earth, and how the recognition of that you're part of that, right? When you are able to design a learning process in which a person is able to strengthen that interconnection, their behavior, their attitudes, their values are likely going to be different. So what happens after that is you have maybe a business person who suddenly isn't thinking of damaging the environment and the bottom line. What you have is an engineer that might be doing things and finding solutions for global challenges. What you have is a doctor or a nurse who is not dissociated from what's happening in their community and their local environment, but they're actually very aware of it. So the the concept of interconnection within nature can actually take us a long way. And I remember having a conversation with um, a brilliant Italian who works in future studies and kind of she's a futurologist. I would kind of summarize it like that. And I asked her about um, this education process that she was creating. And um, she told me the first thing in any learning process is you have to care about what you're learning and you have to care on why you're learning. You can't just go into a learning process without caring. And I think that's important. And we've left that out, out of the higher education system. We've left that caring component and, and she used another expression that I won't use in this podcast because it includes a swear word. Um, but she kind of said, first, you got to, you know, fill in the blank. Um, <laughs> so that caring component, that caring component is incredibly important. And as, a, as, a, as institutions, we've forgotten that that is incredibly important. And then comes the next question then is, how do we design learning processes 
that actually then leads students to care, right? Not just sympathy and going beyond empathy is compassion, right? Is that ability to act, is that not just ability, but the desire to actually change things. So thinking about that, those big questions really excite me on how we might move the needle forward, as your show is called, and how we might redesign how institutions do things transversely, starting with care, I think is incredibly important. Yeah. And I, I honestly believe, I don't I don't think this will be um, a heavy lift on the part of the students, because I've been doing a lot of reading about how on the student side, they are desperate to care. They are desperate to see the relevance of, you know, why am I taking this particular this particular class in this semester of my university and how does it connect? And even if I don't know what I want to do with my life, what is the why behind this? Um, and and I, I don't think that uh, that will fall on deaf ears. When we figure out a way to communicate that caring to our students, I think they will uh, be very, very hungry uh, for that and be very receptive to that philosophy because they are also looking to make meaning. I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, I, I feel that this a lot has been actually pushed by students. So I'm really excited to actually work with very good student communities that are wanting to see more of this in higher education. Yeah, it's so exciting. What a fascinating conversation. I could do this all day. Carlos, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to talk with us about these big ideas. It's my pleasure. I don't know. It's been it's been really good to to be able to throw these ideas out there. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.